Hello, I'm Rachel Lyman, and we want to welcome you to our 2023 Interfaith Connection podcast. This is a Spiritual Life Center monthly podcast dedicated to the exploration of faith traditions that promote love. Rev. Dave Lyman is my partner in marriage and also my senior minister partner for our Interfaith Explorers organization. We're both so excited to be starting our third year of podcasts on this grand adventure. Our goal this year is to explore and make new friends at faith communities in the greater Sacramento region where interfaith continues to grow. We also want to encourage your feedback as you participate in interfaith events and field trips, read our newsletter and listen to our monthly podcasts. So as we say each year, buckle up and get ready for the exciting year ahead. Hello, everyone. This is Reverend Dave Lyman, the Senior Minister for the Interfaith Explorers. Today, this is Interfaith Connection, our monthly podcast dedicated to exploring interfaith in the Sacramento region. Today, we've got a really special podcast for you. We live in a region with a number of junior colleges, state colleges, universities, and they represent all the different facets of education, of learning, of diversity. So recently, the question came for Rachel and myself about interfaith on college campuses. Now, I work, as you know, on the Interfaith Council of Greater Sacramento, and I had the opportunity to do some exploration of interfaith on the campus of UC Davis. I found one of the most active interfaith communities on a college campus in the United States. Today, we're gonna to begin our podcast focusing on a very unique living situation at UC Davis and a unique person at UC Davis. <laughs> we are honored today to have Reverend Lauren Judd, the Director of Spiritual Engagement and the Campus Minister of CA House at UC Davis. She's here to educate us about an amazing living program, an organization, and how she came to be where she is. Lauren, welcome to Interfaith Connection. Thanks for having me. Great so to I want to start off by, you know, wanting to know how you got here. I mean, <laughs> you were born, you were little, you got big. How did you end up being the campus minister? the director of spiritual engagement, because it would seem you would need to be spiritually engaged to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I grew up on a farm in central Connecticut um, in a farming and construction family. Um, started as a young person. My, my family then attended an Episcopal congregation in my hometown, which had just this really lovely um kids program and they called it kids night out and it was on Wednesday evenings and it was I think more for the parents to have a free night of babysitting um, but I just I look back on those memories and it was just like it was fun um, two of the women who ran the group would write plays and songs and you know as elementary school students we were just it was we were just playing. We just got to play and eat food and hang out. And, um, you know, we've rehearsed all of this because the church wasn't very big. The social hall wasn't very big. We, so we were always up in the sanctuary, just like sitting on the edge of the, like on the floor, right before the, the altar, the chancel, which looking back, I'm, I'm, I think about, wow, how much does that say about that church that the, there was no question about, yeah, let the kids run all over the sanctuary for a couple hours every Wednesday. And I think it made the church space feel like it belonged to us more than if we were, you know, sidelined in some church classroom somewhere. Um, and then that that church didn't have a very good youth program, um, which was a bummer because their kids program was so great. And so I chose when I was a sophomore in high school, I chose to um, attend the youth group at the congregational church, the uh, Unitarian United Church. No, <laughs> just, I'm so used to saying university and whatever. No, the um, United Church of Christ 
uh, one of the United Church of Christ congregations in my hometown because I grew up in New England. So there's congregational churches everywhere. <laughs> and uh, and they had a phenomenal youth program for middle and high school students. And lots of my friends attended. Um, and my first day at that youth group um, was incidentally the first day of confirmation because their students, the entire sophomore class for the whole program, academic program year, did confirmation. And it just, I was a sophomore. So that's what my age group was doing. Um, and I had a really profound experience that there that probably was, I mean, you know, folks will say that their call begins at all sorts of times in their life. Right. And maybe many of us, there, there's things that we can look back on when, even when we were re- really young children and see where we were maybe, you know, different or, or whatever, had some gifts and talents that some of our peers did in or went went through things that gave us wisdom at an early age. But for me, I think I think it's it's fair to say that my my call to ministry began as a sophomore in high school. Um, and I was heavily involved in that youth group. I got asked to serve on the church council as the youth representative, which um, looking back was also a real testament to how committed the church was. Um, for its youth people, uh, young young folks, that we had not only a a seat on church council, but we had a voting seat. Uh, it wasn't just a, you know, oh, come and attend so we can tokenize you. It was like, no, we really want to hear what you have to say. Um, so I did that for a few years and um, went on to college. Uh, at the time, I, I some of the most powerful people in my life outside of the mentors and pastors at my youth group were um, some of my teachers and especially my English teachers. And so I decided to kind of follow in their footsteps. I studied English with a plan to eventually uh, teach middle and high school, secondary ed. Um, But through that program, I mean, I've always loved to read and frankly, I get more excited talking about books than I still get excited talking about theology, even though in my role, I probably should get more excited about talking about theology. But if you really want to get me excited, uh, you start asking me what I've read recently (laughs) or or tell me a book that you love. And um, so that's still in in many ways, a spiritual practice of mine, uh, you know, reading stories and um, expanding my understanding of different topics. But um, yeah, while in that program, I, I realized that um, as much as I really wanted to work with young people, I, and again, I think looking back, I would probably use the words of call, although as a 20, 21 year old, I didn't necessarily think about it in those terms, but, um, you know, I felt, I felt called, I think, to meet the needs of the whole person. Um, and I, I realized that, if I had become a teacher, which I think I would have been, I would have been great at so much of what I do is still teaching and facilitation, but I think I would have had some real challenges with um, how much I would care about my students and, and their basic needs and their spiritual needs and their social needs. And so I started thinking, you know, maybe like guidance counseling, or maybe I need to go to social work school Um, and at the time I had some pretty serious health issues going on. And so it just became really challenging for me to complete the, the student teaching element of my program. So, um, I did everything in the education program, but the, the final semester of student teaching, because my, my body just wasn't going to be up to it. Um, and that just kind of opened some space for me to think about what other roles there were working with young folks. Um, I ended up coaching high school and collegiate rowing for a few years. Uh, and, and that was a decision um, that one kind of just happened. You know, this job opportunity fell in my lap. I was finishing my last semester of college. And because I wasn't student teaching, I was only taking two classes. So I had time for, um, you know, a, a job that required more than just a regular on-campus job or babysitting or whatnot. So I started coaching the high school rowing program. Um, and, and 
and then really was loving that, loving being out on the water and working with young folks in, in a coaching capacity. And um, from there, one thing led to another. I had an opportunity to coach at the University of Virginia, a women's rowing program for um, three years, um, which was a phenomenal experience. And I, I felt the permission in some ways to explore those jobs uh, because a mentor of mine in college, who was one of the campus chaplains, um, had advised me in this very direct way, which I really appreciate his directness. And he had said, if you're, if you're thinking about ministry, let yourself just live your life for five years. Because at the time I was 22. Um, and he just was like, get some more life experience and try some things out and see how you feel rather than rushing straight to seminary. Um, and, and that, that advice at least really worked for me. I understand that's not always the pathway for some folks. Um, great direction. Yeah, I know. I really appreciated that. Um, and, and he became a minister as a, you know, second career kind of pathway. So, you know, he, he just kept emphasizing, like, you've got time, you know, live, live your life. And I'll say that I graduated college right in the, the worst of the recession. And so the job, the job outlooks weren't great. So I, I had some pretty great opportunities with, the, with these coaching positions. Um, but then when I was at University of Virginia, I was offered a graduate assistant coach position, which um, allowed me to take graduate classes. And um, University of Virginia just happens to have one of the best religious public, public university religious studies programs in the country. And so I started taking courses in religious studies um, and at that point, I was pretty sure that once I completed my time at UVA, um, that I'd transfer to a seminary or divinity school, which is what happened. And then I ended up at Pacific School of Religion, um, had a phenomenal experience. Uh, I loved, I loved one, just being in the Bay Area, coming from a kind of rural suburban <laughs> New England town. Um, I, I wanted to go to school in a in like a micro region of the United States that I hadn't expected or hadn't experienced um, up until that point. And many of the, the United Church of Christ affiliated seminaries are located in New England and in Connecticut. And so I was like, you know, I really don't want to go to div school in Connecticut. I want to go in a, in a context that's different from what I was raised in so that I have even more experience. Um, And then PSR, being part of the Graduate Theological Union was phenomenal because I had access to, I forget if it's eight or nine theological schools, but a significant number of theological schools, course course catalogs. And then on top of that, there's another eight or nine religious centers that are part of the Graduate Theological Union. So um, in many ways, my graduate education was interfaith in both contexts at University of Virginia, where there were um, folks, especially from the three Abrahamic traditions studying in the grad program there. And then um, as part of the Graduate Theological Union, where denominational and religious diversity is expected and promoted. And um, and I, in some ways, I think I took that for granted a bit. Um, but yeah, it was just a phenomenal experience. And I've always wanted to work with young people. I always have worked with young people. Um, and, you know, long story short, I ended up doing uh, my clinical pastoral education residency at the UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento, which is what brought us over here. And then one thing led to another. A friend knew about CA House and they were looking for some somebody to step into um, some leadership roles there. And so uh, here we are. <laughs> and it's been a great fit for me. Um, overall and uh, is the position I was recently ordained to. So it provided me a really clear pathway uh, to finish the ordination process. Um, And yeah, and I'm lucky to get to work with all of these other brilliant interfaith colleagues that are here in Davis. So talk a little bit about you, uh, you're on campus and you represent one of a 
a large number of interfaith organizations, but you also represent the CA House. Or is it you represent the CA House and that's that's the interfaith tradition that you're working with? Yeah, I would say I represent CA House um, more than anything. And then occasionally if I'm on campus speaking to, let's say, the director of the Cross-Cultural Center or the LGBTQI Center or some of the other student uh, student support and um, student-focused centers on campus, of which UC Davis has many, which is phenomenal. There's times where I can somewhat speak on behalf of the ICC, the Interfaith Campus Council in the sense that I could say, hey, we'd love to partner with you on that. Or, oh, if you're wanting to do this kind of program, I'd be happy to bring that to the rest of the Interfaith Council and see what we could maybe make possible. Um, and, and those of us who are on the council, we know each other well, we meet regularly, and we really trust each other to sort of share the, not, we're all spokespeople for the Interfaith Campus Council. And I think we all trust each other to hold um, to hold that in a healthy way, hold that in a healthy way and speak on behalf of the ICC in a, in a good and healthy way. Share a little bit about the CA House, how it started and what it is, because it's been around a long time. Yes, we have been around a long time. Um, so CA House um, originally was founded in, in 1916. So we celebrated our 100th anniversary in 2016, which was pretty phenomenal. So we're going into our 100, depending on how you calculate, 107th or 108th year. Um, and it, it one of the things I love about its history is it began from a student-led movement. So 70 students, um, according to the history I've been uh, given, the, the 70 students signed a petition that led to an establishment of what was then called the University Farm YMCA, or Young Men's Christian Association, um, and then in eight year eight years after that, so within a fairly short period of time, it it became co-ed because at that's the time really early in the century to have that happen, <laughs> right? Yeah, at the time it um, became co-ed, and I I always like to say rightly so. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> and and then it the name changed because it was no longer just the Young Men's Christian Association, so it became the Cal Aggie Christian Association. So the UC Davis mascot and teams are called the Aggie, the Aggies, because it's an agricultural school. So um, that that's that's still the name we're known for on all of our legal documents and, and whatnot. But um, it's also been known as just CA House or like the CA House, uh, sort of in the, the Davis, the UC Davis campus and community vernacular. Um, What's and, your mission? What is your I'm mission? So what is the mission of the house. Yeah, well, we're working on a, a huge strategic plan, so our, our mission might shift a bit um, in uh -huh. the next few years. But in, in its history, I think we've predominantly sought to provide a, a space of community and learning and spiritual development and fellowship and, um, and then also um, to act in solidarity with, with folks who have been historically marginalized or um, are needing space to gather or support in starting a justice initiative. Um, and then more recently in, in our history, uh, 15 years ago, we founded um, the Multi-Faith Living Community, which is a, an intentional living community of um, about 40 students depending on how the rooms are configured every year. But we have six townhouses in our, on our property. And folks, for the last 15 years, students of a variety of religious traditions have lived in community together, um, deepening their own faith tr traditions and exploring the traditions of others, while also just building relationships with folks that I think without the intention of the multi-faith living community, um, many of the students who live there would, would never otherwise live with some of the people that they, they live with. So I, I find that it's really broken down some of the, 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 the ethnic and cultural and religious barriers. And, and I would say 
you know, racial as well, that we have folks that have roommates that just wouldn't end up living with in, in a more organic way, right? Like you tend to live with your friends or people who are studying the same programs as you or people in your same um, graduation year. Whereas we have grad students, we have postdocs, we have undergrads, we have um, international students. And, and it's just pretty, I think that's one of the biggest um, impacts that our just the existence of our community has um, without even factoring in some of our, our program goals, but just the fact that we have 40 students living together um, with so much diversity present is, is just a really unique experience compared to I think many of the housing situations that are open to, to students. And, and you have property, you've had it for a while. Yeah, so our um, we're we're located um, directly across from campus, which is a phenomenal location. And um, the the land was purchased in 1955 um, by the the Synod of the Pacific, um, which is part of the Presbyterian denomination. Um, so they still own the land, but we own the buildings that are on the land. Although I don't remember what the arrangement is with the main house but the townhouses we own the the living community we own um but they maintain i think that the title to the the deed to the land and that was the arrangement at the time and for any other folks who are involved in you know church and denominational organizations some of the arrangements between our different uh levels of church organization can sometimes be kind of unique and quirky. So that's, that's one of the things that's quirky, but they, they've been our supporter for a very long time, the Presbyterian church, um, along with the, the United Methodist church and the United church of Christ. And so, um, those are like your church partners. Yeah. Those are our denominational partners and, and that they, bec- they, uh, when, when, it became co-ed, those denominations affiliated uh, or established partnership with our organization. How does, um, if a student's coming to UC Davis, how do they end up at, at CA House? How do they find um, out about yeah, it? Yeah, well, yeah, most of our students, we typically have students living with us who are second years and above. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it's just because a lot of first years choose to live on campus. Um, there's always exceptions to that rule. We did last year, we did have a, a student who's a first year, um, but most students will live in the dorms or other on-campus housing their first year. Um, and then we have lots of students who are from the local area who will commute. I know some students commute as far as the Bay Area or live on the, the east side of Sacramento. Um, and that's predominantly because of cost of cost of living in Davis, um, and it, it may be a lot cheaper for them to live with family or extended family. Um, but yeah, d- most students find us, honestly, I think through word of mouth um, and some of our programming with the Interfaith Campus Council, but we also advertise in the student newspaper and in some of the housing groups that exist on campus and the listservs and, and whatnot. Um, and, and so, yeah, most students will just find out about it that way, look us up, decide if it's something that sounds like they want to participate in and then they'll apply to, to live, to live with us. And, and I will say occasionally we get referrals from some of our church partners. Like if they, you know, are, if there's a student who grew up in, let's say a Methodist congregation somewhere in Northern California, their pastor might reach out to me and say, Hey, I have this student that's going to be attending UC Davis in the fall. They'd love to get connected with you. Um, and so s- sometimes they start coming to program first and then the next year we'll end up applying to live, to live in our community. I wanted to make sure today, um, the CA house has not been quiet through the years. <laughs> no. And, and reading your copy, it talks about the fact that uh, during the 60s, there was actually a bus to Selma to march mm-hmm. with Martin Luther King, that your organization worked with the farm workers and and took up many, have taken up many causes through the years. 
And so it's not a quiet group of people. Um, your, your house has voice and, and seems to use it, which is, you know, pretty neat. Yeah, I think, I think those are certainly some of the, the most exciting highlights of our history. And I think uh, one of the things I think we do really well um, is also show who we are and what our values are what our values are by what we do and not always by what we say. So, you know, I'm happy to speak on behalf of Sea House for a podcast like this, or recently I was asked, um, there's a, a fledgling chapter of Students Demand Action at UC Davis, which is one of the, um, it's a partner of the Moms Demand Action Against Gun Violence. Um, and there was a vigil for the the victims, the shooting victims of the three shootings that had happened within a few days here in California. And so the student leaders reached out to me to see if I would help facilitate that vigil and read the names of the folks who were passed away, had passed away. And, um, you know, so there's lots of times where I'm asked to, to be a little more public, a little bit of a public spokesperson. Um, but I, I also think that at least when it comes to some of the students, they are understandably as a, as a whole group, this generation tends to be fairly skeptical of religious organizations. And I think that that is warranted given the harm that's been caused in the name of God or in the name of Jesus or in the name of faith. Um, and so they're very disillusioned with the institution, with religious institutions. Um, and so I find that some of the best way to communicate who we are is actually by not saying it out loud, but instead allowing students to find us. And for instance, I have a student um, recently who's lived in the community for two years, who is a first generation student. Um, his parents are immigrants and um, grew up somewhat like secular Muslim and just re referred a, a friend to live in the community who is, um, who is non-binary and Hispanic. And, you know, just amongst those two students, we have this wide diversity. And, and I think if, I think the fact that they chose us um, and then have experienced what it means to be part of the community rather than us saying all the time, like, this is what we do and this is who we are. I think, I think that's, I, I find that that's a more successful way of building trust, um, with, with the community, with the student community. Um, and many of them have been traumatized by their religious communities of origin or by theologies that, condemn their identities as sinful and, um, you know, that they should be repenting for who they are rather than what they've done. And um, so there's plenty of conversations where I end up being very verbal and, and trying to um, counter some of that experience with the, with the theology, my own theology, and also the, the theology that informs the work of CA House um, but I, I use I use that sparingly because I think it, it's more powerful for students to just be hanging out in the LGBTQIA center and talk to me about something that has nothing to do with faith, and then later on find out, wait, you're you're a minister, you're ordained, like, wow, you don't look or sound like a lot of the folks I've encountered, and and so it's sometimes better to to and and I understand that that could maybe seem. Uh, misleading, but I, I think it's better for folks to get to make up their mind about me or about the organization um, once they've experienced us rather than finding out, oh, wait, you're faith affiliated. Okay. I don't want to talk to you because I don't want to, I don't want to go there and you're going to try and convert me. And, you know, it, it's a different way of building trust. In our work, we found an organization back in the Midwest called Springtide. They're mm -hmm. a uh, group. Yeah, they're they're phenomenal. Interviews from uh, 15 to 33 year olds, and what you said is exactly what they say that that mm -hmm. 
people in the, that age range do not believe in religion. They believe in spirituality. And, and in the polls that they conduct, it said the people, the, the people they talked to said to them, do not tell us what to believe. Mm-hmm. Ask us, what is it you believe? Right. Absolutely. We want to have value and be asked about what it is we're doing because it's a personal connection with God. And I just love that because it means those kind of conversations you're talking about. Yeah. I only talk about what I believe when, when I'm asked directly by students. Um, And even then sometimes I don't answer and I flip it back around. on them. There's a great t-shirt out there that my, my family got me because I, I was ordained and got the calling when I was 55. And mm-hmm. the church says, um, um, I'm a minister. Don't look so surprised. <laughs> yeah. And I love that because you yeah. get it all the time, right? You're a minister. Yeah. I know. I've had to live into the slogan-y t-shirts because otherwise it's not as easy to identify me on campus. Because I, I, I also tend not to wear a collar um, because I think it, it can turn more people away than invite conversation or it invites conversation of folks who just want to come and argue with me about theology instead of have a really like good faith conversation about differences and and belief and you know be curious about each other and so yeah I I have a couple of slogan-y t-shirts like that. I love it. So the the next level is is the the overview that occurs on your campus because you have um, I was in a fraternity in college, and we had the interfaith interfraternity council. You guys mm. have the interfaith campus council, right? Your organizations have a campus council, an umbrella that you do events in. And I yeah. want to share with people before I let let you talk about this. Um, we had a couple of our board members come to your interfaith harmony week to the night of speed faithing which I just loved. And the lady who went wrote just such a beautiful thing about how fun it was um, in doing it and some of the really interesting questions that you posed. (laughs) You had to think about it a little bit. So talk about the Interfaith Campus Council and what it is you guys, that that organization did, because you're part of that also, right? Yeah, so CA House is one of the founding members of the Interfaith Campus Council, and I'm not able to get an exact year, but um, in conversation with my colleagues, we've we've narrowed it down to sometime early to mid 1990s um, when the Interfaith Council Campus Council was um, founded, and and it it branched. Uh, it's sort of an offshoot of uh, what's called the University Religious Council, which is a a body that is mediated by the university. And it's changed hands throughout the years, like which department or which leader within the UC Davis hierarchy is kind of holds the space for that group. But um, Prior to the founding of the Interfaith Campus Council, the University Religious Council um, had done programming as a as a group in conjunction with the administration. Um, but sometime in the in the nineties, there was a a, a a new chancellor. So in the U- University of California system, the the president, the effectively the presidents of each university branch are called chancellors. Um, so there was a new chancellor that, the, and the University Religious Community Council ended up like really changing to just being kind of an information uh, sharing group where the university could communicate to the leaders of different religious student organizations um, about different campus policies or events or changes in like how to register as a student group and whatnot. Um, and so the, the folks who wanted to continue the type of programming or some of the programming that or just programming at all that the university religious council had previously done formed the interfaith campus council. Um, and, and that was when I think one of the first events they did as the interfaith Camp- campus council 
um, was a progressive dinner that we now call the movable feast, but it, uh, it was a progressive dinner where we'd start, uh, at one of the sites of a campus ministry that was part of the interfaith campus council. And then, uh, incidentally, at least three of them are located on the same street in Davis. And so we just moved down the street and then, uh, to some of the, the groups that are a little further away. Um, so yeah, I mean, at this point we've, we've been around for almost 30 years, which is, which is really phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we do. So we've, we've, we've continued doing the movable feast. It's one of our most popular events in the fall. Um, we're always grateful to the Hillel community for holding the main, they, they cook the main dish, which is a, a fair amount of effort, but their campus and uh, staffing is more capable of feeding, you know, over a hundred people than some of our other groups, but we each take, we each take turns and and it's just a space for, for folks to actually be in the buildings of different faith groups um, and feel really welcome. I know one of the highlights for my students is always when um, the Torah scroll is brought out at Hillel for them to look at and, um, and explore and, and learn about. And then we just, at each stop, we'll just share a little bit about like, this is our faith tradition or our denomination. And and this is what, how these denominations, you know, differ for some other denominations. Um, but it's, it's a kind of elevator pitch kind of spark notes version of it, but, but just a way to orient students a little bit who might not be familiar with like, for instance, lots of different Christian denominations, like, wait, but what's the difference between all these places? So, um, so yeah, it's, it's great. And then in the, in the, in the winter quarter, because UC Davis is on the quarter system, we always participate in the United Nations Interfaith Harmony Week and have a variety of events. So that was the, the event that your colleague had attended and uh, CA House always hosts a dinner where we do an event called Speed Faithing, where we, it's it's, it's based on a speed dating kind of <laughs> protocol, but instead it's questions about your faith or your belief system. Um, and the questions are very broad and very general. One, to make it easy for folks t- to engage in them and not feel like they have to have you know, significant religious education in their own faith tradition or, or be, they, they, you know, we don't want folks to feel like, oh my gosh, I have to be so articulate and, you know, knowledgeable about these things. So, so we ask very broad questions that, uh, that allow folks. What was your even, favorite question this year? Um, one of my favorite questions that I think folks really uh, appreciated answering was what is something that has challenged you in your faith? Um, great question. And, you know, the, again, the answers to that can be anything. (laughs) Um, and then we had a, a follow-up question, which is like, what is something that's really affirmed your faith or that you've felt, uh, has helped you (laughs) feel like, Oh, my, my faith is in alignment with other values or how I witness the world or how I've experienced the world or, or whatnot. So those are some of the questions that I think that I got a lot of feedback on when the, when the participants were answering, were answering. And some of them are like, this is a really hard question. My biggest challenge I, is answering this question. I know I, I kept encouraging them though, you know, cause I, again, I think there's such a, there's kind of a stigma around pe- folks feeling like, Oh, well, I, I don't have the expertise to answer that. But the the key is you're answering for yourself and you're the expert in your own life and you're all college students and are more than capable of answering a question like this. And so I, I just try and, and, and if they really are stumped, I'm like, you can talk about something else, change the question. That's always allowed. It's really interesting. We do a newsletter monthly, and we have uh, in the newsletter a segment called God Moments. And what's really interesting Mm. is, you know, people think, well, a God moment has to be the thing bigger than life, and it has to change every um, atom in my body. And it doesn't. It gets to be exactly what it is. And that's one of the things people realize, uh, as you say to them, well, just 
share. You know, because we all have them. We don't know what they are. They just happen. Mm -hmm. Called synchronicity sometimes. Yeah. Well, Lauren, I could spend the rest of the afternoon talking to you, but we can <laughs> have our podcast be oh so long. And one of the things I wanted to make sure is to know that um, that this podcast I know is going to be heard by somebody <laughs> who's, who's has a daughter or son at UC Davis mm. and maybe pointing them towards you. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, one of our board members, uh, his daughter is in the Muslim Association on campus. Mm. And so there are people there. But we definitely, before we close, want you to, this is your last, you know, your last. This is another opportunity <laughs> to, to do kind of a closing statement about what you want to make sure that you got to say today. Yeah, I think one thing we haven't touched on that I just want to be really unapologetic and very clear about is that uh, CA House has been affirming and welcoming, uh, like publicly and, you know, sort of in writing, uh, affirming and welcoming of the LGBTQIA community for about 30 years um, and was the first Christian organization in Davis to make that really clear statement. And, and I want to say that we're not just affirming and accepting, but celebrating um, the, the wonderful identities and experiences and, um, and courage of our LGBTQIA students. Um, and I think there's, again, so much harm that's been done. Um, and I, I think that's a group that I hear from a lot. Uh, who is, I mean, as a generation, Gen Z is mostly disillusioned with with religious institutions. Of course, there's always exceptions, and there's folks who've had great experiences growing up, but um, there is so much harm daily being done to our our LGBTQIA still youth and young adults. Um, more than half will cont contemplate an attempt suicide uh it increases to almost two-thirds or more for our trans youth and young adults um and so welcoming affirming celebrating our lgbtqia students is 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 life-saving for some of them um and and the rates of uh suicide attempts drastically drop when there's one person in the life of a young person who is like supportive and, uh, and celebratory and just super affirming of, of their identity. Um, and I find that that's some of the most powerful work I do and some of the hardest work and not because it's hard to talk to these students, but because it is, it can be just devastating to hear what some of them have been through and how, how much the toxic theology has separated them from a God that they maybe previously had a, a really beautiful and trusting relationship with. Um, and so I feel, you know, lucky to be the one who's often trusted with these stories. And I feel a duty to, at, at any point that it's possible, be uh, really publicly and unapologetically uh, supportive of that community. Um, and, and try and educate folks on why, you know, setting aside the theology, it's just an issue of, of life. If you care about people being alive, you need to care about, um, about our LGBTQIA neighbors and friends and siblings. Um, and so <laughs> that's me a little bit up on my, um, what's it called? I don't know, my it's, little podium or whatever. It, it's your voice. And it's such an interesting thing because one of the most powerful set of words I've ever heard uh, was in the first Avatar movie when <laughs> they would say, I see you. Mm. And that's in essence what you're doing. And that's, um, we, we did a field trip to the Holocaust Museum on Sunday. 
Mm. The one thing she talked about, the threads between you and her and the group that was working there was the word connection. Mm. That, as you said, if one person sees you, it changes everything. And believes you, you know, I think that's another thing that's really, really important. It's like, I believe you are who you say you are. And I know that that might change throughout your life. All of our identities change throughout our lives in all sorts of ways. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't real at at a certain point in time. And especially for our young people who are figuring themselves out and still moving through stages of development where things change fairly quickly. uh, I think it's so for them to yeah have anyone and then in some cases especially uh, an ordained minister say i see you i believe you and i'm here to do whatever i can to help you reconcile whatever faith or belief that you 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 aspire to have in your life with your identity to introduce you with folks who've walked this path ahead of you and to connect you with other resources to support you on your journey and and of course that's true for all of our students but i find that there's a really particular need right now for for healing and connection and reconciliation amongst these young folks who um, who I think are doing the work of helping us all be more free to live as we'd like to live, to express ourselves how we'd like to express. And, and that's something I try and help folks who are confused about like, well, what is what is the I in LGBTQIA or what is this? And, and I try and just say, listen, the best thing you can do is believe people. And if you have questions, don't make them explain themselves to you, right? Like come find somebody else who can do that. And, um, and that it's not about whether you understand why it's not about you. It's about, it's about them and about calling them by the name they would like to be called and using the pronouns they'd like to use. And, uh, doing your own work to figure out whatever that might mean for you. It, like if it makes someone confused or uncomfortable, like that's your work to do, not the the young person's work to help you feel better about whatever is making you uncomfortable. We're so, we're so grateful for the work you're doing in the front lines. Um, though I will add that it's not just the students. It's right. No, of course age. not. We're all going through it. And we're mm-hmm. doing the best we can with what we've got right now. Uh, and it'll change tomorrow. We yeah, Remembering absolutely. and forgetting. So yeah. today we have had the honor of having Reverend Lauren Jewett, the Director of Spiritual Engagement and a Campus Ministry at CA House. She has helped and is working on creating the diversity that is part of the process. And... Um, We look forward to working with her in a lot of different ways in the future. If you have questions, uh, let us know and we will get them uh, out to you guys. Uh, So she can, you know, if you you have things that you want to connect with them on. um, It it shows that when young people can show up as their authentic selves and someone says to them, I see you, I believe you, it changes everything. we come to the end of this podcast, and it's kind of like we could we could go another hour easily. Oh yeah. We learned interfaith is active and strong on the UC Davis campus, uh, and we acknowledge the the. I have nine that I know of, and there may be more, but the the ones that I have that are a part of the processes are the Baha'i Club, the Belfry, the CA House, the Multicultural Church of Davis the Muslim Student Association, the Newman Center, and the Unitarian Universalist Campus Ministry. And there probably are others that I haven't mentioned. Yeah, I would add, so the the Hindu Student Union, which was founded last year in response to some anti-Hindu incidents that happened on campus. So that's a student-organized group that's, uh, that's working on becoming more involved in the Interfaith Campus Council. Um, the Davis Christian Fellowship and the Koine and Klesis uh, Christian group. And I think, I think that's everybody. And, and there are websites that you can uh, take a look at things. We're thankful, Lauren, for the work you're doing. Come on, on our podcast and talk out of nowhere because you didn't know who we were. And 
we didn't know who you were. We had, and I've got to tell you, being on that board at the Interfaith Council, we got so excited when we heard about you guys. It was like, oh, boy. <laughs> so, so well, it's been awesome. It's been awesome to get connected with you all, too. Um, and I'm grateful for how much you've reached out. And um, and then also the, the, the network connections that you all have, I'm sure, will become uh, very valuable to the work we do. Uh, with our students because there's lots of faith traditions that don't have a formal student organization on campus or a form- formal campus ministry and and I'm sure there will be times where we want to um, to reach out to folks from those traditions so that we can learn or experience some of some of their practices or wisdom. Lots of opportunities ahead. So today this has been Reverend Dave Lyman. We want you to have a blessed day. Uh, Know that next month we are going to explore on our podcast the challenge of Ramadan uh, and take a look about how Ramadan kind of is similar in terms of sacrifice, cleansing, and purity as Lent and some other faith traditions. And we are challenging those people who are going to participate in our service next month to join in the fast in one way or another to take a look at cleansing and purifying on a daily basis. We'll look at what it is and how we can honor it. Join us next month. And again, Lauren, you have a blessed day and keep doing the work. Thanks. You too, Rev. Dave. Thank you for joining us today to explore a deeper understanding of our interfaith look at the world. This 2023 podcast will be aired the fourth Thursday of the month on Spiritual Life Center's website, slcworld.org, under Interfaith Connection Podcasts. You can also listen to our previous 24-plus podcasts at this same location. And we want to hear from you, so send us your comments, questions, or suggestions to me. That's Rachel Lyman at rachel24 at surewest.net. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-2-4 at S-U-R-E-W-E-S-T dot net. And let us remember as we go along our different paths that Gandhi once said, a peaceful exploration of all faiths is our sacred duty. Namaste.